Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Fundamentalists podcast. We upload uh, on a, a, a schedule that is specifically designed to make you want more. Um, and we do it in such a way that it's jarring, it's decentering, and ultimately best for your personal growth and for our personal preferences. So thank you for being here. I'm here once again with Dr. Peter Rollins from Ireland. Um, Pete and I were just discussing things, catching up for a moment before we began uh, this episode of The Fundamentals, which is on art, and we're going to get to that subject in just a little bit. But Tangentially Related is a podcast uh, that just is going up at the time of this recording over at The Valley Cast, which is another podcast I do with my pals, um, Kevin uh, and Steve and Joe. However, I, I hijacked it and did an interview with the director of one of my favorite documentary series of all time, very new documentary series. It's on Peacock of all places, and it's called Paul T. Goldman. And I uh, chatted with the director, who is also the director of Borat's subsequent movie film. Uh, young, smart, creative guy, and so you can uh, feel free to check that out. But it was very fascinating to hear him talk about his journey with Paul T. Goldman. And if you haven't seen it, because it sounds insane, because it's on Peacock, and of course nobody has Peacock, I'm just saying if they have a free trial, everyone should watch it. If you like uncomfortable comedy, um, which I do uh and i believe everyone should so that's what we were just discussing but people enjoy it, and you do it what's that you enjoy you enjoy awkward comedy and you do awkward comedy i live it <laughs> you know what i mean that's my art and uh i i sitting in cringe and bathing in it and marinating it is oh like awkward silences i talked about this a little bit with jason Walliner, the director but he, because it's something that i love and i get in trouble for it my wife does not enjoy awkward silences and i think that they're absolutely hilarious and i enjoy timing yeah. them in my head and seeing how long everybody can wait before talking happens which is not a good habit i guess for podcasting so what are you up to pete Oh, what am I up to? I also want to ask you who this person is, who the dog's made about, because I don't know. But what I'm doing, um, I, I have something to plug, I guess. I've got my yearly Atheism for Lent course Ooh. coming up, which is lots of philosophy uh, reflections for the month of Lent uh, that starts in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Flirting with Hell. The subtitle is Flirting What's with that? Hell. I, I like to think Flirting with Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I'll use that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm doing that. A little bit of writing. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of interviewing with uh, Boothby, and actually, if this goes out in time on Sunday, I am doing another live interview on YouTube with Richard Boothby, Great. who is a philosopher uh, who wrote "Embracing the Void." So, if this goes out before Sunday, the seventh, no, the fifth, I think something like that, you can cool. watch it. Otherwise, you can go and watch it in retrospect. Nice. So, this is past Pete talking to future listeners yeah isn't time weird it's nuts yeah um yeah, yeah. the 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 guy that the the guy that paul t goldman is about is named paul hmm. t goldman and it is a story about a guy who falls in love only to find out that his new wife is actually part of an international uh crime sex ring and uh it's his story to take down this evil empire uh as just a regular old joe schmo and it it chronicles his story and the way he fictionalizes it and he ends up writing a movie about his experience based off of a book about his experience that later becomes 
scenes in the documentary that he stars in. So you know when they make reenactments on documentaries? This is like movie-quality reenactments with actual real actors, except for the main character, who is this sort of Woody Allen-type figure uh, who doesn't have any experience acting or being on set. And you see not only the movie scenes, but the -the behind-the-scenes interactions of the guy the documentary is about, and it is just trippy the entire time. It's arguably the weirdest piece of entertainment i've seen maybe ever like it's up there it's really really um weird so yeah that would be i mean it sounds like that's very like you know in the art world postmodern, uh you know where you have so many layers of simulation and eventually there's no there's no territory of which the documentary is a map it's a map of a map of a map you know it's a creation of creation um, yeah, so it sounds like, but but right down at the base, there is some sort of kernel of reality. Some, yeah, <laughs> some, <laughs> I know. Some sliver tether to reality that eventually just gets frayed and frayed and frayed until the very end, and you end up uh, endearing yourself to this just incredibly quirky, mildly innocent, but also potentially naive uh, individual. And um, it is it's worth checking out, but I don't want to. I don't want to harp on that since it is art, in my opinion, but it is not. Um, At least it's not Weezer you're talking about, so not it's yet. you're talking about something. No, that's yeah. 2022, dude. You 2022 yeah. was a great year for uh, Weezer fans, for all seven of us. It was because they released four albums, so what can I say? Well, here, this week was a great news for us U2 fans. Oh, yeah? YouTube released, they haven't done anything good on it for a while, but they released a, a, a cover of their song, With or Without You, they're doing an oh, album cool. where they're reading some of their tracks, and it's a, I think it's a beautiful re, re kind of reimagination of the song. Very oh, really? Worthless. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's very you know, it's it's very melancholy. Very you know, more so. I mean, the song itself is very yeah. melancholy, but they they Bono's voice is great. I mean, he's his voice has got better and better recently, and. Cool. Yeah, this song's this song's devastating to listen yeah. to. Yeah. Well, I'll check it out. Um, cover of your own song. That's um, that's a bold move. Hey, what do you call that term for that? Because it's probably not cover because it's your song. So you're, I don't know. They, so you're doing like, a reimagined, yeah, acoustic, a stripped down version. Um, I mean that's what like Taylor Swift did with her whole catalog, right? Like she sold her, she she lost rights to her original songs, and so she just re-recorded all of them and made it. Oh, it knew um but they're so they're all slightly different but basically the same songs and then she gets to own them i guess i don't know um that's okay. pop culture stuff and uh god bless her she's a uh, absolute just <laughs> what yeah well with or without you as well actually this could connect with our theme of art because i was listening to it today i only discovered it today that they brought it out and i was listening to the lyrics and um it is a beautiful on the edge of how we love both the presence and the absence of another and that 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 love and desire is kind of on this knife edge of of with and without and uh yeah i mean we'll talk about that with art because i want to get into that with in terms of art but uh but uh and the mona lisa but the but with or without you is a beautiful song about that because it's it's about presence and absence and it's about the this absolutely overwhelming passion that comes from living in the space of those two things nice yeah yeah i um i think absence is a really nice thing sometimes especially if you have a life where you 
work from home and you're with your partner um, all of the time. And so we like to joke around every now and then. I'll be like, maybe I should just, maybe we should, maybe one of us should go away. (laughs) Yeah, like, like, this is awesome. But like, should we maybe, like, should you, should I go out somewhere? Or like, should we be apart maybe for a second? But uh, that's, it's, that's more of a cute thing than a sincere thing. But it is a legit thing. So. (laughs) <laughs> Speaking of being together all the time, we went to this museum. It was absolutely wonderful. We, I've talked a little bit about this, but it's, it stays in my head because I, I'll read like poetry. Poetry comes up a lot in school readings and stuff. And you, every time I'll read a poem, I'll be like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then they'll kind of, you know, amplify it. and They'll talk about it. They'll dive into it. They'll break it apart. And then then I'll read a poem and I'll be like, nah, I don't get it. Like, it doesn't do anything for me. Sometimes it's like a punch in the gut. Then I'll go, same thing with the museum. And there was this one piece that I really loved. I find that I really like poppy things, and I like some abstracty kind of things. I know nothing uh, about art, so I just kind of go in and try to enjoy it. There's one, I think his name is Jeff Koons. Maybe oh, yeah. I'm wrong. That's Yeah, the, the big balloon dog that they have at the um, L.A. Museum is so fun to look at. But I was looking at it, I was like, ah, that is a big balloon animal. And then I was like, I kind of want to touch it. And so then I start thinking, why can't I touch everything in here? Like, And why do I want to touch it? Because it's smooth and shiny and nice. And is that what the goal is? No, it's supposed to be that it takes everyday mundane things and juxtapose it with a size that you're not used to in an effort, I guess, to decenter or knock you off your kilter a little bit. But what? What do we, uh, do we like art? Is that a thing that we got to keep? Do you think we're going to keep doing it? What happens? Can we get rid of it? Have we had enough? What's next? <laughs> Are we going to finish with the art? <laughs> yeah. Are we yeah. done? Um, yeah. So, you know, you, you thought of this topic as you were at uh, the museum, which sounds a lot more fancy than the other thing you did this week, which um, was the Universal Studio. Oh, yeah, yeah. That uh, that's another type of art, yeah. I mean, that was actually yeah. weirdly... Um, we got... Okay, so we took... It was quite... Uh, tangent here but we went to the universal studios and i was like we're gonna spend all day here we were done with everything in like three hours it was so quick yeah but we i snuck in a little bit of uh what would be called marijuana i don't know if you've uh heard of this uh, yes and there's a tincture that I'll, I'll sometimes use it's very quick and you take a little dropper and it feels very scandalous and fun but we then it hits and then all of a sudden we're on these rides and it hits uh, like a little bit, maybe too much. And we were on the Transformers ride and I was like, oh, this is not good. Like I have um, crossed over into this is a, a fun kind of high anymore. But then we got off of Transformers, went to Harry Potter land, bought fudge and sat in the corner and watched everybody use their wands everywhere because they have interactive wands. <laughs> and we were like, this is the greatest ever and then we left and so that was our uh, our also artistic experience <laughs> and was your the text you sent was that a very knowing text or was that a freudian text which one at, when you were out no that was studios. so funny i was telling uh, grace about that before we were going on the ride i was like pete made a very funny freudian joke i said i'd try to come up with a topic for the podcast while i was on the ride for the mummy and you said like while I was riding mummy, the mummy, the mummy, yeah, it? while riding the mummy, and then you said Freud would be proud, and that took me a second, and then I was like, oh man, that was right there. I know it was very good. It was like, oh, it's perfect. Yeah, I was gonna try to, um, and I forgot because it's that's the best ride I think in the park, but the um, 
because I do love theme park rides, if I haven't made that abundantly clear. But I was going to try to film on the ride and send you um, something, but I, 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 it was too adventurous, and so I didn't. So I'm yes. sorry, Pete. <laughs> anyway, right, art. Anyway, yeah, so well, here's, here's some... Uh, whenever you said about art, I was kind of started thinking about this and um, thinking about because it might be good to start off with a definition of what what art is, which is really really difficult, obviously. Um, well, I would say if, that art is the expression or application of human creative skill and imagination, typically in a visual form such as painting or sculpture, producing works to be appreciated primarily for their beauty and emotional power. But that's just me. <laughs> where did you read that from <laughs> i googled right before it began what is art <laughs> chat, chat api is that yeah. or something or whatever you call it <laughs> might as well be yeah um okay well I'll, yeah that's interesting i'll go for a slightly different definition um say like that art but yeah i would kind of say that most of what we call art is an attempt to wrestle with the sublime with to to kind of evoke something that is within the visible that's beyond the visible something that is enigmatic that is not reducible to uh to kind of imminence or to kind of like the visual field but is kind of sparked off within the visual field um and you'd see in different art movements different ways of trying to kind of like Capture this in philosophy is the difference between essence and existence. I actually have a painting up on the wall, Anselm Kiefer, and uh, it's a painting. I think it's called Essence and Existence. It's an incredible image of like a mountains, and it has essence and existence written into the painting. It's very cool. And, uh, I, you know, it's this the idea of the artist who kind of like paints stuff that exists, but somehow evokes an essence that is... Um, you know, obviously you can think of the platonic essence, the real something, but something that is not reducible to the painting itself. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say something like the Mona Lisa and then go from there. Because I was thinking about the Mona Lisa recently because the Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the world and it's the most photographed painting in the world. I think it's the most visited painting in the world. And of course, the question is why? Like what makes it interesting? And um, some art critics will generally say that there is an enigmatic uh, smile or an enigmatic expression on the Mona Lisa that, that basically generates a question. There's something like of what is going on in, in that woman's mind. Like, so there's an enigmatic dimension, which for me, coming back to mummy, um, is that, you know, the first experience the child has of the mother other is there's the familiar, right? You meet the mother, you know them. There's a certain, if they're a loving mother and they're a stable mother, um, there's a familiarity and that's really lovely. But there's also this other dimension that the infant experiences, which is this, what Freud calls das Ding, which is the enigmatic dimension of the other. Like, what does she really want? You know, how can I be more desirable? What, what does she desire that's not me? There's a question mark, something... That, that we can't answer. And so the Mona Lisa is a great example of, of Freud's das thing is there's the familiar face, but there's also this dimension of unknowing. But the interesting thing about the Mona Lisa is that's not why it's famous. Uh, I think it's famous because most people are, 
are unsure about the desire of other people who go and see it. So it's the enigmatic desire of everybody else. They go, why is the Mona Lisa so interesting to people? <laughs> so what gets people to the Mona Lisa is the enigmatic desire of other people who are probably going to the Mona Lisa because of the enigmatic desire of the other people. And go right down to it, you'll find art critics who are there because they're going, yes, this enigmatic desire is in the painting itself. So there's a visible and invisible. It's iconic. Yeah. yeah. I think the reason it's so popular is just because she's so hot. <laughs> I look at that. Yeah, that could be it. Damn, Mona. Yeah. Um, like Freud's mom. Did that he was obsessed yeah. with her just because she's really hot. Yeah, she's smoking hot. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, also, I think you said Freud's Dessine. I think you meant Heidegger, right? Oh, no. It, Freud uses Dessine as oh, well, but you're yeah. right, Heidegger well and can't so it's kind of yeah but that's a brilliant connection because in philosophy there's this what philosophers call that ding the thing as you said is that is that this dimension of reality that we cannot penetrate what freud talks about in dasting is the impenetrable nature of the subject so they're really connected yeah, yeah. uh I think it's McGilchrist in Master and the, his emissary talks about the when you're looking at a piece of art, the frame around it is very like um, important because it acts essentially like unconsciously almost as a window. And so when you look into it, there is this sort of like even though it is bound within the frame, a good piece of art will feel as though there is you're seeing something more like you're seeing into something like it, it shows you the whole thing at once and yet you're limited and bound. And so it forces you to like, to, to constrain your brain a little bit. Um, I don't remember if that's exactly yes. what he said, but it was an interesting thing about the frames and being like windows. No, yeah, absolutely. Like a frame can, like I've, I have an artist friend and he will often look at things out in the street and imagine a frame around it. He just imagines yeah. And, it's, and that's why yeah. I started doing it a brief window. And when, when you start doing it, like you see it like a shitty uh, billboard that's all ripped to pieces, but then you imagine it f as a frame and then you suddenly, it suddenly starts to look really beautiful. Yeah, it's know? crazy. It's a, yeah. Um, uh, what was I? I had a thought and I completely... Oh yeah, it's um, going back to what you're saying about the uh, movement. The different movements are always super interesting to me, and I, I think it might have been at this museum, but it was about like how Picasso and Einstein essentially were very similar. Like they called Picasso like the artistic Einstein, and Einstein like the scientific Picasso, and how they both kind of like came up at the same time independently is always really interesting, and the 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 correlations that happen in scientific movements alongside artistic um like waves yeah. is just like the coolest most fun thing and seeing how it is expressions of what people are like going through collectively is really fun yes yeah like the the it's controversially but i don't think it's that controversial but you know and lacan would say potentially that that this earliest experience of the infant if we didn't have this we wouldn't have science or art we wouldn't just wouldn't have it which is the earliest experience which is the familiar what you know and then this dimension that you don't know that the, you're both yeah. terrified of and drawn to. And so, yeah, in, in science, the scientists experience that. There's the familiar world, but they also have this sense of an unfamiliar, unknown territory that is desirous and fascinating and sometimes even threatening, you know, uh, that draws them. And the artist yeah. is the same. The, it's a, yeah. And the, like my, my favorite doctrine, in, oh, go ahead. 
No, after you, please. Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to mention it. It's like I was thinking the other day, so predestination is really interesting. Um, Yeah, so fascinating, really fascinating doctrine within confessional Christianity, um, which for anybody who doesn't know, it's like you are predestined for heaven or hell. You don't know what you're going to. You can't do anything about it. From when you're born, you're either going to go to heaven or hell. I think two of the really interesting things about predestination, the first is it creates an ethical subject because you can't do the good to get you into heaven. You can't do it for economic reasons because there's nothing you can do, right? So, you know, somebody might be good because they're going to get a reward, they're going to get to heaven, whatever, but you can't. So if there's no point being good unless it benefits you, there's no point not being bad uh, unless it damages you. I'm so sorry. This is unbelievable. Did that? Somebody called me. Sorry, and I bet they'll call me back because I just hung up on them. So if that happens again, Uh (laughs) yeah. Um, Oh yes. Uh, So in predestination, there's no economic incentive to be good. So you either just have to be good or bad because because nothing you do will influence you. So it creates an ethical subject. But that's not the most interesting. But that's just kind of sidelined. The most interesting part of predestination is. It's like in religion, if you believe in God and you believe in a loving God, that's like the familiar mother, right? The loving, stable, it's Mm -hmm. all great. You also have to have a dimension of the other that is inscrutable, that is anxiety producing, a dimension in which you don't know whether the other is going to love you or destroy you. So in a relationship, for example, there's the familiar familiarity of your partner and they're stable and they're good. But there's also a part of, the other where you're going, will this person be the end of me? Will this person be the death of me? Yeah. Or will this person be kind of like really make me fulfilled until the end of my life? You know, we'll have some, there's like an enigmatic notion that even they don't know the answer to. And for Lacan, that's what's what provokes anxiety is not knowing this dasting of the other, but being able to live in the uncertainty of it. So predestination forces profound anxiety on the subject, but also allows the the subject to find a way of living in and even enjoying their anxiety. Um, And that's kind of what art does at its best for me is that it keeps open the dusting. When you look at a great piece of art, it opens up a transcendental dimension that you can't name. That's kind of alluring and unnameable, anxiety producing at times, but and, that, and that's the difference between art and pornography for me is porn in a sense satisfies. It gives an answer to your desire, but good art. Mona Lisa. Quest. Yeah. Mona Lisa. <laughs> Mona Lisa. Good pornography. Yes. Uh, I think the most interesting thing about predestination is that the moment you started mentioning something about Christianity, Jay Baker had to call you because he, he felt it in the ether. Oh, yes. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's true. He knew. He yeah. absolutely knew. Oh, Pete's talking about Jesus. <laughs> That's right. Some progressive religious people, they hate things like predestination, but it is the kind of conservative evangelical form of dusting. It's a, it's a way of like, because ultimately for me, like to be human, I follow Kierkegaard in this, to be human is to be able to, is to be anxious, which is to not know what the other wants. Like, for example, if you go on a date with somebody and you fancy them, it's a blind date. You have a question, what do they want from me? Like, do they want someone quiet who listens to them? Do they want someone boisterous and funny? Do they want someone serious and thoughtful? And that produces anxiety because 
you don't know how to present yourself to the other because you don't know the other's desire. But of course, the trick is they don't know either just to a certain extent. They may think they do, but there's a certain extent which they don't even know what they want. But that's anxiety. And that's why Lacan, and I think we've talked about this before, Lacan's brilliant analogy is, he says, imagine standing before a giant female praying mantis uh, and you are wearing a mask and you don't know if you're wearing the mask of a male or a female praying mantis. And so you don't know whether the female praying mantis is going to cut off your head and devour you or not. So that that's anxiety is not knowing what you are for the other. And you're um, aware, yeah. of course, that the mantis motif is quite common in parapsychological literature. And that mantis people oh. appear uh, quite frequently in moments of things like sleep paralysis. And they tend to have a morally ambiguous nature where you don't know whether or not they're good or bad. And they're giant mantis people. And they are, they stay looked oh, down. Lacan would like that because, yes, I suppose the image of the mantis as an ambiguous figure. That's why uh, Lacan mentioned that. So that's very interesting. And they're creepy. They're creepy looking because they look like little humans praying. And they are uh, strange. Yeah, I saw one the other day on my door. And it is, they're cool. I do like praying mantises a lot. But I'm not a big bug fan across the board. And so I just sort of like keep my distance uh, from them as much as possible until I have to remove one from the house. But yeah, I like the, the mantis thing, the, the standing before the unknown and uh, not sh- knowing and just existing. It's a very lovely uh, thing. It was, I was reading some, on this technology course about the, um, the sort of like ten- the tendency we have basically to unearth everything. Like we, we love unearthing things and they were relating it to the way that art originated, or at least uh, some, in some cultures like the Egyptians Art was what they made in the tombs. So art wasn't something to be put on display outside. It was something that you were buried with for like the reasons, ritual reasons or whatever. And then you have the like ancient caves because I was watching Kunk on Earth uh, as a part of my homework. It's not part of my homework. Uh, uh, you can like, like Kunk? Huh? Oh, yeah. she's a great. Yeah, oh, yeah. I actually thought about sending you her stuff because she's great, but I didn't know if... Yeah, Americans would know her. No, yeah, you, you. The only reason I know of her is because you turned me on to her like years ago, and um, oh, then right. she okay. popped up on a um, game show, and I was then she popped up on Netflix. I was like, oh, she's so funny. But uh, yeah, she she's conveying real information, but doing it in a very very dry, weird way. And uh, it was <laughs> about sort of the um, the cows that they painted in the caves, and you know, she was like, I'm here looking at these ancient caves because that's what the producers told me to do. And this depicts a, a war, and back then they only had cows and people. Like It's just like making constant nonsense up. But uh, it is trippy because you go like, oh, man, since the dawn of human uh, kind, we've been like, let's draw stuff on the wall. Let's see what it looks like. And, and then you go, are they doing it because they're – um like wanting to get for good luck which is what they said that there's a good reason they may have drawn these things so that the hunt might go better uh and then to see now versions of art that we have where it's literally to just destroy preconceived notions or to tear away things or to make people purposefully slightly uncomfortable um very fun very fun stuff there's a the like one of the most famous pieces of modern art is uh Duchamp's urinal. Do you know Duchamp's yeah. urinal? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating because you know it takes Duchamp basically just took a urinal, put it into yeah. an art gallery, did a signature, um, uh, smut, I think it was the signature, something like that, and 
you know, it was really, really interesting because it took something that is mundane, not art at all, didn't do anything to it. I mean, signed or something on it, but by placing it into an art gallery, same thing you were saying about a frame, by placing it in the frame of the gallery, this mundane object that is not art weirdly becomes something more than itself, mm-hmm. which is kind of what love is like is, you know, some mundane person is just like everybody else that strangely in the frame of fantasy yeah, yeah. becomes yes something else with it, but while not becoming something else, something else while, while maintaining exactly what they are. And so I think a lot of postmodern art and modern art is, yeah, is playing with exactly what you're talking about there is that taking something mundane, but by simply framing it, um, you kind of notice that something mundane can become transcendental. Wasn't that piece specifically also to kind of be like a middle finger to the stuffy like aristocrat aristocrat art world of like people who just think everything needs to be so serious and clean and polished and so he's like putting it in there like there's like wasn't there a rebellious act i mean isn't that all of that postmodern art is supposed to be like against the art community as much as it is like a comment on larger themes or am i wrong there yeah like definitely, absolutely, it was a kind of critique and conversation with, and even middle finger to yeah. other other. I suppose because, I, and, and this is where like I'm not an art. I would love, I I studied aesthetics twenty five years ago, or whatever. But but like a lot of the arts that was pre modern was really interested in kind of trying to through some sort of like a visual image, kind of bring out something beyond itself something sublime something that could not be reducible and so whenever someone like Duchamp just puts a urinal in and that becomes art that kind of is a really interesting critique of this like trying to capture the perfect moment of light or the impressionism of the of the landscape or the expressionism from Germany like it's it's almost like going no you can actually do this yeah with with an every yeah it's just you know, and then of course there's the famous one. Um, this is not a pipe, yeah. Which is again really fascinating um, play on. As soon as you symbolize, I mean, the way I read this in many ways is it's a real comment on linguistics that as soon as you name something, it is it is more than and other than what you're naming. As soon as you as soon as the birth of the word is the death of the world, Hegel says the birth of the world is the death of the world. So as soon as you name apple. It's, it's you're naming something objective, but also there's it's not an apple. An apple is a is a, is a word that's connected with a whole pile of other words, connected to your childhood, connected to health, connected to kind of like whatever. Um, which is the opposite of someone like Ayan Rand, the objectionist, who she thought that everything is just what it is. You know, so whenever that you ever who, who did uh, this is not a pipe. Do you remember? Um, uh, uh, it will. Was that
yeah, yeah. But yeah, this jarring that kind of like yes, like I mean, I, I wonder whether like the difference between again porn and art is porn satisfies but ultimately dissatisfies, but good art dissatisfies in a satisfying way. Like so, the the point of of a piece of art is actually the opposite of porn. Is like it, it's supposed to evoke a question and a dissatisfaction and a and a moment of like disorientation that that is in itself enjoyable a moment of negation yeah yeah and i think because porn kind of kind of almost gives you what gives you the answer it like it doesn't evoke a question it kind of offers you an answer i think to a certain extent Yes, which is yeah, the dissatisfaction that comes afterwards, like the moment after orgasm, where you're like, "Oh my god!" Like this is yeah, that's the, the dissatisfaction. Oh yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah. Um, you're thinking of Mona Lisa. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, you were saying about. Oh good. Oh yeah, no, I was just going to bounce in and again this kind of the modern art thing where, which, which I'm not, you know, necessarily a huge fan of, but but it's almost like all of these artists are playing with what is the relationship between what is seen and what is unseen. And by the time you get to some of the modern artists, you're getting to a point where they are, which I do like about modern art is that they're trying to show that these two things are completely one and the same. Like that's kind of almost like the, um, uh, like oh, something we talked about a couple few weeks ago in the podcast, I talked about those two artists, the Greek mythology where they were the greatest artists of the day one they were asked to paint something so realistic that like it would blow the audience away and the first person drew these grapes and pulled back the curtain and there were these grapes that were so realistic the birds of the air tried to eat them and then the other artist they said right pull back the curtain let's see your art and the artist says well the curtain is the art and then everybody realized that he'd actually painted curtains that were so realistic they fooled everybody into thinking that there was something behind them and so that's kind of modern art in some respects, I think, is it's showing that the appearance generates an idea that there's something beyond the appearance, but it's purely the appearance itself. Oh yeah. Oh oh, Bosch. Oh yeah, Hiroshima. Bosch. Yeah. I never says first name at Bosch. Yeah.
Oh yeah, that's really interesting because, right, it's very hard to say where this is going, but but exactly the thing we're talking about here, which is, I mean, Heidegger would say, because I know you've been reading some Heidegger for your course, you know, Heidegger makes this really interesting distinction between being and beings, things that exist and existence as such. Um, the I've played around with the artwork uh, on AI stuff. I went, I, I can't remember the one I downloaded, but I played around with that. And at the moment, the thing is, this is what I would say that is missing both in when I play around with asking it philosophy questions and when I play around with it with art is, um, is that I think it has real trouble uh, in terms of the art stuff, it has real trouble uh, evoking dusting. Um, what it gives you, it gives you a very visually pleasing image that is almost like popcorny, and and it has a real, it has a certain kind of radical, imminent kind of look. Now, that's that's, but that's everyone. In fact, I'm sure people will disagree with me because I've seen some great stuff on it. So this is not, but um, it's it's not. That's going to be hard. Is when when. Okay, well, can I say one? Well, say I'll say this is that I'm using Shizek as um, human beings for an for an AI, an AI would not be able to distinguish between coffee without milk and coffee without cream. Um, but but within the realm of subjectivity, those are two different things. So, for example, the wine that you pay for might not taste as good as the wine that you steal right they're they're both got they're both bottles of wine but the wine that you steal might taste better you know like enough in peak show whenever super hands you steal some chocolate gives it to jazz jazz goes oh this tastes great and then jazz says the secret ingredient is crime right so obviously yeah it's just a good line but you know crime is not an ingredient within the chocolate crime is an ingredient within subjectivity so i i've got questions around how i how AI will be able to enter into that level of uh, nuance. Um, Yeah. Yeah. 
because the the only the only good when I was playing around with it, the best art it was made was whenever I asked it to do something, but would put in something like oh Caravaggio in the style of Caravaggio or a style of impressionism. So I got it to kind of like do something in a very in an artistic style in the style of a certain artist, but it did feel obviously it was borrowing very heavily. Whenever I asked it to do things without kind of referencing art movements and artists the images kind of like were so poppy, so satisfying. In other words, so devoid of anxiety, so devoid of dusting. Um, now, and I do think that in contemporary society, and it happens, but this is a problem. This is, And it's not just a problem, obviously, in art. It's more of a problem in relationships and stuff, is that we're more and more frightened of the dangerous dimension of the other. Like, do we want to date somebody? What will they say about us? What will they say to their friends? What will they put online? But instead, I can maybe have a relationship with somebody on OnlyFans, and it's contractual. So the reason why I go into OnlyFans is because I can get rid of dusting. I pay a certain amount of money. I get only the familiar. I don't get the dangerous dimension that always comes with a relationship, always comes with a friendship, always comes with a lover. And, um, you know, more and more, we are very, very terrified of dusting in relationships, in art, in life, in politics. Um, we want to avoid the tox toxicity of the other. We and toxicity is just a name for, in a way, the dusting of the other. Oh, I've heard of that. Yes, I've heard of it. I don't know, is it? I, I, I've, I've, I've even felt it in my own life, and I know some of my friends who they wouldn't call themselves that. They wouldn't call themselves incels. They wouldn't call, it, but they, but they've completely opted out of life. Out of, they just kind of work. They go home. They don't even sometimes go up to their bed. They go. They sleep on the sofa. They, I, I know a number of people, and I know sadly a couple of my friends, male children, because it's a mostly suicide's mostly a, like the suicide, the disease of despair. Suicide is mostly a male thing. I have a few friends who have two sons have committed suicide, and it's a partly a, a radical removal and a sense of no place and a removal from society. So yes, this is massive. It's becoming huge, a huge issue. Um, and it's, it's damaging it's male and females, damaging to everybody, you know.
Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's like, it is interesting because this dusting for the can and in psychoanalysis in general, I think, but is, um, is, is an unavoidable dimension of existence and also of other people. Like you cannot get away from the fact that the other person is a praying mantis, no matter how familiar and how great they are, because if you became totally familiar, it's no longer love, right? So if, if someone becomes so familiar to you that they're no longer a praying mantis, you're going to have no interest. You're going to go off with somebody else, right? The, so the, the other person in so like you have to experience the other in their dimension as a praying mantis. Um, but it's terrifying. And if that gets, if that anxiety becomes too much, as we're talking about, you said, like, I, sadly, I know so many people is it is rife. And um, we get to want to do a podcast on it actually, because I think it's, it's, it's devastating. And for some young men I see now, it's absolutely, devastating. but it's, it's a, it's a complete removal from the, the field of danger that comes with relationship. Yeah. I mean, for women, is often experienced in threat. So the threat of being, you know, walking alone at night or being in a lift with a man and what does the man want? Or if you see... In <laughs> yeah. Or TikTok where you kind of like, you know, the men, the male gaze. So yeah, so there's there's different forms of it. You're absolutely right that... Um, uh, because, because we're all as human beings repelled and attracted to dusting Yeah. Everything you're saying, see the, see the kind of the back and forth you're doing, the brilliant back and forth you're doing is exactly how, that's exactly how people feel because of online stuff. Like, so the, and the, obviously uh, in the can, they call it the big other, like, so in, in Twitter and social media, we're getting simultaneously contradictory messages, right? Like so many, and the anxiety that that produces what does the other want from me? Like, does the other want me to say, approach them and, you know, and chat to them? I was actually talking to a friend of mine, uh, a girl today, today, who she was saying, because she was listening to something on Twitter, something about how annoying it is when you go to a bar, get a drink and read a book and some guy tries to chat you up. But she was like, God, if I went into a bar on my own, got a drink, and nobody came to, came over to me and chatted me up, I'd feel, I'd feel really hard done by. But the point is, they're, they're, they're contradictory messages because both those messages are being said. One is the message, like, if you go out to a bar, 
on your own for a pint and read a book. You know, that's there's a message there. Of, it's a social space. I might want to talk. But simultaneously, there's a message of that person might just want to be on their own. They just want to have a drink in a, in a public environment and read a book. And so what happens is the anxiety becomes so much that one of two things happens. You become what they call, and I don't like the term, but incel, or you um, go to a conservative, say, church where the rules are much more well-defined. So, you know, so, so often you see both, both these, ex these extremes, you know, um, not the Yes, does do that. I Kierkegaard once said, he said, someone who lectures you on love because they've, you know, they've been successful in love is like somebody who fell off a cliff, somehow survived and then started giving lectures about how you survive falling off a cliff. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's all here, this, and what I was thinking at the time was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I, you might like one, one, an artist I really like that's very similar to Rothko is Barnett Newman. I always liked Barnett Newman. I've never seen his work live, just got books, whatever, because he's never been where I am. But he, Barnett Newman has this thing where, you know, Rothko would do the um, horizontal lines. Um, Rothko, or sorry, uh, Newman would go for these vertical lines. And these vertical lines, in some way, if you kind of, you know, if you get the grandiose nature of it, it can, in fact, I did see a, a Barnett Newman once in, I think, Philadelphia, and it was a massive painting, red with a line down it, and there was, it was quite kind of powerful. The most powerful art. Oh, yeah. He has the Twistations of the Cross, which are like 12 very abstract paintings are very good. Um, the most powerful piece of art I've ever seen, but is the Rothko room in, in the Tate Modern. It is an emotional experience. It's just, 
don't know if it's permanent or not, but it's like these almost black Rothko paintings and it's quite overpowering. I, I, but to be honest, but I'll tell you, like I'm also, Anselm Kiefer is one of my favorite artists, but poetry leaves me mostly cold and I'm not a big art guy. I'm not a big art guy. No, I, yeah, although I do have a lot of art in my house. There's an artist, a friend of mine who's an artist, and you know Johnny McEwen. I've got a lot of his art. Some of it I won in poker games. Some of it I get cheap. Um, so I've got his art, and I love his work. Um, but yeah, so I, but Kiefer, you would like Kiefer. Kiefer's very dark. Like some of it's like, oof, you know, but it's it's very, very powerful. I told you about the TV I bought, which is called the Frame TV, because I didn't have a TV for months. Yeah, I didn't have a TV because I don't like how TVs look. And then my mate, was actually Johnny, said, there's a TV and when you turn it off, it looks like a piece of art and you can get to a piece of art. And he said, and, it, and it's matte, so it doesn't look like a TV. It genuinely fools you into thinking it's a piece of art. So I bought a, a frame TV and I do love it. It just, when it's off, so I have like a key for all. So I'm actually getting more into art now because I can have like really pieces of art in the room. It's crazy. It's crazy, yeah. Like the, the one I've got on at the moment is like when you even when you go right up to it, if you didn't know it was a TV, it, it's the same piece of art. It's crazy, and so yeah, that's that's helping me appreciate art a little bit more. Well, this is the, this is saying that like this is what we always think innovation is, you know, like thinner, faster, better. So like TVs are getting thinner and thinner, or you can actually like unravel them and put them on the wall as, as a piece of paper. But actually, that's not really the innovation. The innovation is when someone thinks. So my TV is quite thick because it has to be because it looks like art, so it has to kind of have a thickness to it. So it's it's like where you somebody comes up with an idea that's not about thinner faster better it's about oh a completely different use like there was some i can't remember who the thinker the person was he's some kind of design expert but he said basically uh they were talking about like how to make they're always talking about how to make the um the journey between london and paris faster they kind of whatever you call that route under the under thing and uh, he said like you don't have to make it faster. What you can do is, you know, serve champagne, like have like really, you know, like attractive people serving you, whatever you can like. So instead of always thinking it has to be faster, you can think laterally. So that's exactly with the frame TV. I'm going like, I don't care if it's thin. I don't care how many pixels, if it's 8K or anything. But as soon as they said, it can look literally like a piece of art from like from LACMA on your wall, like sold. Shit, that, that's a new idea. Like, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah. Well, on what you're saying about going to museums, it's like maybe museums and churches, empty churches, are like two of the few places we can go that are about space and about contemplation and about like, you know, not kind of productivity, not having to kind of almost like lazy. So, I mean, obviously at museums now, people are taking photos all the time, but technically you go to a good museum, it's, it's maybe it's a type of sacred experience in a world without the sacred. So, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll do that with my as my as my takeaway, um, and maybe yeah, maybe just kind of reaffirming that idea that 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 from very early on we have this experience of the of this enigmatic mystery, uh, this this question mark, and good art, I think brings up that question mark and helps us sit within it and helps us to kind of enjoy sitting within it. I think that's why they talk about, you know, you look for a piece of art that you can live with, which I think means a piece of art that continues to some extent to dissatisfy you, to, to evoke a question, to evoke an unknowing. Yes, I love that. And I've got your present of the uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Mark's book, Business Secrets of the Pharaohs. It's one of the few books that brought with me. Uh, I did, <laughs> and it's sitting in my hallway. So, yeah. Right.